we're going to continue our worship with prayer this with scripture reading this morning. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in, the, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Amen. We have heard from our scripture reading this morning the clear command to teach our children the things of God. God says that everywhere we go, we should be talking about his word. He says, a beautiful, he says talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And this morning, uh, you might think that I'm about to preach a message and say, all right, get with it. Are you talking? Are you, are you obeying this clear command? That is not what I'm going to do. What I want to do is I want to show you an example of someone who obeyed this command. And my prayer is that we would see the joy of meditating on God's truth and that we would begin to obey out of a love for that joy. At the end of this message, I want to hold up the work of Jesus to see how we can meditate on that. And so together, we can know the joy of teaching what God has done. When we think about the things that God has done, it ought to color every page of our lives. And so this command from Deuteronomy should not be a burden, but it should be a blessing. But to do that, I want to look first at Psalm 19 as an example of obedience. Psalm 19 is written by David. And if you are not familiar with how to find things in the Bible, Psalms is close to the middle and there are 150 of them. So you've got a good shot at finding the book and navigate to Psalm chapter 19. And I'd like to show an example of someone who discovered the joy of faith. And I'd like to read the entire psalm and then say a few things as we go throughout it about the joy of obeying the command of God to meditate and talk about the law of God. So begin with me, Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent. From hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In this short psalm, you see an example of someone who begins looking at a sunrise and ends on his knees in prayer and in worship in the presence of God. And what I want to say this morning, I want to take you through three steps of this psalm. And I want to lead you to a place where you and I can do the exact same thing. Where as we look at the things around us, we can ponder the things we know to be true, and we can be led in worship. Every day of the week, not just on Sundays, but constantly. And so to begin with, I want to point out the joy of God's creation. You see this in verses 1 through 6 as David describes the journey of the sun. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When we think of glory... I was listening to a, a, a lecture given by a guy named Joe Rigney at a, at a conference two years ago. And he was talking about emotion in preaching. So how do you keep preaching from being dry and academic? And how do you incite imagination and life and vitality and joy? And when he looked at this psalm, he said, he said this, and I, I want to I build on what he said. He said, when we think of glory, a lot of times we immediately jump and think of power. We think of how magnificent the size of God is and his ability to do anything by the word of his mouth. He is so incredibly powerful. But this psalm does not do that. It begins with the glory of God, but David clearly says that glory is revealed in joy. And over and over again, he uses images that should help us appreciate the joy of creation in following the exact course that God lays out for it. He describes, he says that 
He has set a tent for the sun. That might seem confusing unless you know a little bit about Jewish weddings in David's day. See, they would have a little booth for the groom and he would anticipate meeting his bride and seeing her on the wedding day. And he says the sun coming out of that tent is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man who runs its course with joy. Imagine a groom on his wedding day looking forward to a life of blessing with his bride. He cannot wait for the ceremony to begin. He cannot wait to exchange vows and to become husband and wife with his beautiful bride that he loves and delights in. And so the sun coming out day after day, every day, it never gets tired. It cannot wait for the day to begin and it shoots across the sky with joy, just as God has designed it. He says it's also like a strong man who runs its course with joy. Think of an Olympic athlete. Think of someone who has dedicated his life to running a race. And when that pistol fires, he doesn't complain about how terrible it is that they've set a specific course for him to run. He doesn't complain about the confines of the track. He lives for the moment when his muscles flex and he takes off and runs that course that he has trained for, that he has prepared for, that that is his life. And David says, this is what creation is like. All of creation obeys what the Lord has told it to do. And all of creation shows the joy and the glory of God. Here he is. He's thinking of this as he looks at a sunrise. Have you ever looked at a sunrise like that and thought those thoughts? If you get up a little bit early, maybe you hear the birds wake up just before the sunrise. And I think the birds are doing this too. You hear them tweeting and they're, they're kind of marking out. This is my territory. This is my tree. Don't you come in my tree. And you see the bluebirds kind of be a little combative. And you can hear all of nature anticipate the sunrise. And when it rises, you get a glimpse of the glory of God. David says that's universal. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in China. It doesn't matter if you're in Brazil. Everyone has this experience of seeing the sun come up. And David says it declares the glory of God. And that is profoundly full of joy. Verse 7 is like a hinge for this psalm. And it seems like he is changing topics, but he's not. Because the way creation obeys the commands of God has reminded him of the good and rich blessing of the law of God. So verses 1 through 6 describe the joy of God's creation. Verses 7 through 10 describe the joy of God's commands. And you can see what David says. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If you are discouraged and depressed and you don't know which way to turn, David is saying, knowing what God has commanded will breathe new life into you. Knowing how to obey will make it possible for you to enjoy good blessings from the Lord. He said it makes wise the simple. He said 
it rejoices the heart. He says it enlightens the eyes and it endures forever. You know, we change laws in America seems like every four to eight years, right? But the laws of God never change. You don't have to worry about a new administration coming into office and all of a sudden you've got to be brought in line with a different standard. The laws of the Lord are perfect and they will always produce blessing as we obey them. And David says, this is just like when the son follows the course that the father set out for it. There is blessing and life and all creation shows his glory. When people follow the law, there is life and there is blessing and there is goodness and it is to be celebrated. And so he's moved from looking at creation to thinking about God's commands. And he's saying there's the same joy in God's commands that I find in God's creation. That's a message we desperately need today. So many people are convinced that God's commands are oppressive and stifling. So many people believe that if you live consistently with what God says in his word, you have to somehow deny who you truly are. But the Bible says the commands of the Lord are life. They enlighten the eyes. They let you know no matter what you feel in your heart, no matter how you're tempted to be led astray, when you follow what God says, you will be blessed and you will find joy. And that leads David to a place of prayer. You see, there might be some confusion here. You might think that I'm saying, all of us, we just need to obey what God has done. But the scriptures are clear. We actually can't do that. And you see David expressing his prayer in the same sort of spirit as he recognizes he has not always kept the law. And... He is begging God for help because he wants to experience these blessings. Notice how he prayers, and and I've entitled this point, The Prayer of a Believer. Look with me here, starting at verse 11. He's still talking about one of the things that the law does, but he brings himself into it in a very personal way. And he says, moreover, by them, by your commands, by your law, is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. So he recognizes that this has a very personal benefit for him. But notice what he prays in verses 12 through 14. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. He's acknowledging, God, I have not kept your laws. And in many ways, I am not even aware when I break it. So he begs God for forgiveness. He says, declare me innocent of the things that I've done without intending to do them. And more than that, He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David says, my heart wants to sin. My heart desires to break your law, even though I know it is good. And so he asks God for help. He says, God, I know your law is good. I know keeping it will bless me. But I know my heart, and so I'm asking you to restrain me. Like the hymn writer says, Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. That's what David is expressing here. 
And then he says, then I shall be blameless as he depends on God to do that for him. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And he ends like this. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David has moved from looking at creation to thinking about the law to talking directly to the creator. And do you know when his prayer is answered? Do you know how this prayer is answered? As David says, keep me from presumptuous sins, declare me innocent from hidden faults. I believe you have to look all the way to the New Testament to see how this is finally answered in Christ Jesus. Paul, describing the life of faith, describes this tension where he says, I know what is good, but the good that I know I should do, I don't do it. And he says, the things that I know not to do, those are the very things I find myself doing. Paul says, I am stuck knowing that the law is good and unable to obey it. And he says, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? He is praying the same prayer of David. God, set me free. God, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. God, keep me from presumptuous sin. Do you know how God does that? Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can be forgiven for our hidden sins. We can be kept from presumptuous sins because Jesus died for those sins. And God is just and the justifier of the ungodly because He has poured out his wrath on Jesus for us so that all of the ways that we fail can be forgiven. And all of the ways that we have not obeyed are covered over and we are given the obedience of Jesus Christ. So Paul says through Jesus Christ our Lord, this prayer of David is answered and we who are lawbreakers can participate in in the joy and in the blessing of God's creation and God's commands. And by the work of his Holy Spirit, we begin to learn how to obey and we get to enjoy the blessings of obedience as God changes us from the inside out so that we begin to love the law and so that we begin to love obedience. Now, don't don't forget what we're doing here. I'm using Psalm 19 as an example of someone who has obeyed Deuteronomy 6. Notice what has happened. You you could say in this psalm, you move from something that's very general and specific and far from God, ultimately into the throne room of God. You move from creation, which non-believers enjoy just like believers do, to meditation on God's specific law, his word, the things that he has spoken through his prophets and apostles. He moves from creation to specific revelation. So he moves closer. Then he moves from hearing the word of God, from knowing the word of God, ultimately to prayer. So he's at a place of intimacy with God. He doesn't just stay in the book. He doesn't just stay in the law. He begins talking to God about it. He begins praying because of what he knows from the law. David did not just delight in nature in a general way. He began to think about the goodness of God's commands, his specific commands, 
and how those led to real joy, and that led him to prayer. So in three points, this psalm goes from the son to the law to a conversation with God, and it moves from God's creation to his word and to a conversation with the ever-present, ever-living God. In other words, he has done what Deuteronomy told him to do, that when you go about your way, you talk about these things. You let them be in your mind and in your heart. And so you continually meditate on what God has said and what God has done. So it's not just when you're in Sunday church, but it's everywhere you go. And you look at a sunrise and it makes you think of the blessings of God. Our whole lives should be like this. The whole world points to God, but we need our eyes open to see it. And we need the word of God so that our thoughts about God are specific and true. So here's the question. How do you and I become the kind of person that does what David did? How do you and I move from looking at a sunrise to being on our knees in prayer because of what that sunrise has reminded us of? How is that possible? I believe it starts with a Christian kind of obedience to Deuteronomy 6. Now, look, David never would have been able to meditate on the law if he did not know it and learn it. David was able to think about the law because he had already hidden it in his heart. And I want to stress that you and I as Christians need not just the law, but we need to think about the life of Christ And the future of the kingdom of God every single day. And how can we do this? Well, I want to look and ask, how did the early church do this within the New Testament? How did they take not just the commands of God, but the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ? And how did they meditate on them? Well, I want to give you two examples of the church directly applying something like Deuteronomy 6. This is one of those things that you can read these verses and not think about what was happening in the early church, but I want to think about it. I want to be very deliberate right now. And so I want to encourage you, turn over to the New Testament. There's a small book called 1 Timothy. It's towards the end of the New Testament. You'll see 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You'll see 1 and 2 Timothy. You'll see Titus. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. And I want to point out something that I think sometimes we just gloss over to get at what Paul was saying and we miss what the church was doing with this statement. So 1 Timothy 1.15 says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't just write to the church, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. What does he mean by this saying? Well, obviously he means what follows, but why does he call it a saying? Why doesn't he write it just like he writes so much else in the scripture describing what Jesus did? Well, here's the reason. 
this would have been something that the early church would have used in worship. It was a popular thing that was short and concise, and it was memorized. And when Paul says it's worthy of full acceptance, he means you're hearing other believers repeat this. You might not recognize it as scripture. You might not know if this is a good summary of the faith. Paul is telling them, this is good. This is excellent. It is worthy of full acceptance. And you can use a short little statement like this to bring your heart into the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you remember that, you can know That you have hope. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the early church used short little statements like that. Just like David would have memorized the law. So that they could meditate on what Jesus had done. So that they would remember it. So that they would think about it. And that leads me to the point of this message. The early church obeyed the truths of Deuteronomy about learning truth and teaching it by using short statements like this or very short creeds. And you can see another example of this in 1 Timothy 3.16. And honestly, there are about a half a dozen of these throughout the scriptures. We actually looked at another one in Sunday school this morning from the book of Titus, where Paul says very similar, this saying is worthy of full acceptance. He is pulling things that are commonly repeated in the church and encouraging the church to use them in the context of their worship. And you can see this very clearly, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Notice what he says, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Don't miss that word. He says, we confess, meaning the whole church confesses this, meaning together they confess this. And then what does he do? He gives you a six-line creed or a six-line summary of the work of Christ. It says, he was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Many of your Bibles will have arranged that so that each line is indented a little bit and you get the sense that this is somewhat like poetry. This is a very short summary of the faith and you can think about it and meditate on it and very likely the church would have said it together. You can see he was manifested in the flesh. There are two great truths in that line. One is that Jesus existed before he was born as a baby. He was manifested, means he was there all along, but you couldn't see him. And then there was a time and a point in history when he was manifested. You could see him, you could touch him, like the writer, like like the Apostle John says. He was born as a human. He was vindicated by the Spirit. You can think of his baptism when the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is saying, this is not just a person. He is shown to be the Messiah by the Spirit of God. He is seen by angels. And angels testify to his resurrection and minister to him throughout his, his earthly ministry. He is proclaimed among the nations. That's huge. That's not just we're obeying the Great Commission. That is, the Old Testament says that the whole world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And so this is fulfilling the Old Testament, that the Messiah has come, and not just Jews, but Gentiles everywhere are being blessed 
because of Jesus. And he is believed on in the world and he is taken up in glory. So think for a second. This focuses on Jesus and his work. Starts with the incarnation. Starts with him being born and ends with him being taken up in glory. It's a summary of his whole ministry. And they would have used this in the context of their church. Very often little summaries like this were used in two places. One is when people came to know the Lord, they would be encouraged to memorize something like this before they were baptized so that they could repeat and describe what they believed about Jesus. And sometimes they would be used in the context of a church service. So as the church came together to remember the Lord's Supper, they would confess this as an entire church and say, yes, we all believe this. And they would say it together. This sermon that I'm preaching right now grew out of our Wednesday night Bible study two weeks ago. And you may remember that our catechism question from a few weeks ago was, what do we believe by true faith? And the answer included the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of the faith of Christians all over the world that has been used for nearly 2,000 years. A few of our seniors that night asked me, about using the Apostles' Creed in our church because they felt like we need to do things to make it easier to know and remember the truth. And then the next day, I got a text message from someone else who out of the blue said, what do you think about using the Apostles' Creed in church? Is this something that could be helpful for us? And I believe that God is moving us to a place where I think we need this. We need to be able to summarize what we believe in a way that we pass it on to our kids like God instructs us to do in Deuteronomy. Knowing the truth leads us to a place of incredible blessing. And so let me ask you just for a second, using some lines from the creed here, when you see a sunrise, do you think God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, made that sun and set its course in the sky? When you see a woman who is expecting a baby, do you think our Lord Jesus, maker of the world, was once a little baby in his mommy's tummy? When you see someone in suffering and grief, do you weep thinking of the grief and pain of Jesus? And when you attend a wedding, And all of the joy of a wedding. Do you think of God's great love for the church? And do you anticipate the return of Jesus? Each of these things, whether whether it is a sunrise or seeing someone expect a baby. Seeing someone suffer. Thinking of a wedding. Each of those things are images that you would experience that could bring to mind what Jesus has done for us and move you from a place of enjoying something good to remembering what God has done to a moment of worship where you commune with the living God. And I want to suggest that if if you don't make that connection, if you don't move from seeing someone expecting a baby to thinking about how Jesus was born as a little baby, that it may be because we don't meditate on what we believe often enough. That we don't have those short little statements of faith that help us constantly think about what we believe. So here's what I would like to do. Not too often, but occasionally, 
I would like us to say the Apostles' Creed together as a church. My hope is that if you are part of our fellowship, it will not be too long before you are familiar with it and love it. Some of you are already familiar with it and you sort of hate it. And if that's you, I want to talk to you for just a couple of minutes. I can imagine that there are a few objections, so let me try to address those. Number one, some of you hate this sort of thing because of your past and where you learned it. And if that's you, let me ask you now to please be patient with our church. My reason for using this is I believe that our kids need to exist in an environment where they hear the truths of God repeated again and again so they know them, so they think about them as they go about life. And I want to encourage you to think back for a second about our scripture reading from Deuteronomy 6. God told the Israelites to teach his commands diligently to their children. Now, use your imagination with me for just a second. Can you imagine... A little Jewish boy with an abusive father who forced him to memorize the law. Maybe his dad hit him on the back of the head every time he messed up in reciting it. And maybe he grew to hate that tradition because of his father. Imagine for a second that little boy grows up and has a family of his own. Does that mean that he no longer needed to teach the law to his kids? Of course not. He was under the same obligation. God's commands still applied to him. The thing that needed to change was how he taught it. He needed to teach it like David. He needed to say, hey, there's a sunrise. And let me tell you about the awesome maker of the sun. And let me tell you what a blessing obeying our God is. Not, I'm going to hit you on the back of the head if you get this wrong. Some of you have experienced a little bit of hitting And so you've decided that we don't need to memorize and know these things because that's mean. And what I want to say is we can experience life and blessing as we meditate on what Jesus has done for us. And it's a good thing. Second, you might object to the content of the creed, particularly one little word, Catholic. That does not refer to the Roman Catholic Church. Let me say, and I I went and looked to make sure this was true. The word that's translated Catholic in the Apostles' Creed, when we say it together in English, is from a Greek word that is pronounced Catholic. It refers to the universal church, but it doesn't just mean universal. It means pure, good excellent. And so if you try to replace it with anything else, you lose something of the meaning. What it's saying is that everyone who believes that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead is part of the same church. And we can celebrate that people in China are saying something very similar in Chinese. And people in Brazil are saying something very similar in Portuguese. People in Germany are saying something very similar in German. And all of us celebrate the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism. And all of that is bound up in that little word, Catholic. So I want to encourage you, if you twitch every time you hear that word, to be patient. To remember the good things that it means. 
and to embrace the good things that it can teach our kids. Third, the the third objection to doing this, sometimes churches that say things together can seem lifeless and dead. And I can testify to that. I have been in very dead liturgical churches. Jesus even warned about vain repetition. But let me remind you, we've seen two scriptures this morning. There are about a half a dozen that show that the church within the scriptures learned from the apostles to do things like this. They had short statements of faith that they used in similar ways, and that's what 1 Timothy 3.16 is doing. Jesus is not opposed to memorizing or confessing truth together in worship. He is opposed to vain repetition, and the word vain lets you know what he's opposed to. He's saying, don't say it in an empty way. Don't let the words tumble out of your mouth while your head is thinking about a fish sandwich. Focus on what you are saying. Say it as a prayer. Say it with reverence and awe, with a tear in your eye and a catch in your throat. Marvel that a virgin carried the Son of God that put the stars in place. Marvel that he was made a tiny little baby. Weep at the crucifixion. Celebrate the resurrection. Long for the return of Jesus and rejoice at the forgiveness of sins. Let this be an emotional thing so that as you meditate on these truths, as you go out into the world and you see an expectant mama or you see a sunrise or you attend a wedding, That truth is already there and it's already part of you. And you can move from enjoying a good blessing to thinking about the truth, to praying to the Lord in a personal and an intimate way because Jesus is so good that you wanted to remember these things, that you wanted to learn them and know them. So I want to ask you, would you join me in worship confessing this truth together with me as best you can, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to ask that you would recite it with me if you can, if you're familiar with it. And actually, we do have it on the screen, so say it with me. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. If you know this, you can meditate on it like the psalmist did and let that meditation lead you to joyful prayer. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you have done, the world you have made for the Lord Jesus, 
who although he existed with you, he was willing to humble himself and to be born as a baby. And that not only did he humble himself to be born as a baby, that he was willing to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have glorified him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, I pray that you would let us know these truths, not just in a way that we could jot them down, not in a way that we would mumble them as if they're some sort of magic words, but in a way that leads us to rejoicing in what Jesus has done. We want to glorify him too. And so Lord, I ask that you would help us to remember these things and may we be faithful to obey. Lord, I ask for your help just like David did. And Lord, we know that you hear us and answer because of what Jesus has done. And so we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.